It's time for Getting Down to Business with Mark Mondo. This new show discusses trends, technology, and tactics to help the listener learn more about improving sales, saving money, and fulfilling a personal mission through entrepreneurship. Welcome to Getting Down to Business with Mark Mondo on WVLP 103.1 FM. I'm your host, Mark Mondo. We're on the air in Valparaiso, Indiana, and you can listen to us streaming on the website at wvlp.org or use the TuneIn app on your mobile device and look for WVLP. 103.1 FM WVLP is a local nonprofit radio station based in Valparaiso, Indiana. This show, like many of the shows on WVLP, are made possible by the generosity of donors and underwriters. We accept donations at WVLP.org. Simply click on the support tab and make a one-time donation or sustained pledge to WVLP. All donations are tax deductible. Underwriters are made up of businesses and organizations that support the shows on WVLP. Getting down to business with Mark Mondo would like to thank Holmes by Hortensia, a Coldwell Banker affiliate in Porter County, Indiana, for their support. Holmes by Hortensia has served the region's residential real estate needs in Indiana for over 12 years. Contact Hortensia Moreno or Tiffany Zorio at 219-249-5118 or visit HolmesbyHortensia.com. Holmes by Hortensia, habla español. Welcome to today's show, where I want to share real stories of entrepreneurial success. This is the real deal. And putting these guys on the air was one of the first ideas that came to mind when I started the show. There are no platitudes here. They didn't invent some app that got unicorn funding from Silicon Valley. They're not YouTube stars that found dumb luck by shooting unboxing videos or reaction videos to Minecraft. This is old school sales selling something that really hasn't changed all that much in the last 100 years. We're going to talk to two guys who succeed in commercial real estate without being trust fund babies. They'll share what works for them and demonstrate that if you study hard to pass an exam, learn how to sell, and take care of your clients, you will succeed. To start, to one of my sides is my brother, Matt Mondo. He calls Florida's Treasure Coast home since 2019 to start a new career in commercial real estate. Welcome to the show, Matt. Appreciate being here. And to my other side is his colleague, Connor Mackin. He also works with Matt. He's been in commercial real estate since 2021. Let's welcome Connor Mackin. Thanks for having me. And to my third side is my co-host, the producer, the star soprano, and my wife, Mrs. Cynthia Zimmerman. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Glad you're here, Matt and Connor. I'm going to start this off, right, husband? That is correct, Mrs. Cynthia Zimmerman. (laughs) Since I don't know Connor very well, i like us to open up the show today with just finding out a little bit about your background, Connor. So uh, before going into commercial real estate, what did you do? Sure. Uh, Thanks for asking. Before I made a change to commercial real estate, I had some previous sales experience in a few different industries. Uh, Keep in mind, I got into this fairly young. I'm 28 now. I got into commercial real estate when I was 25 or 26. Uh, So I'm not here to tell you I had a nice long 30-year career and something else. I had some nice long two and three-year careers and some other stuff, right? Uh, For this, I worked in sales for a healthcare company. Uh, Basically, did online sales where people who are looking for medical services, treatment centers to be specific, were basically looking for help, looking for treatment centers. My job was basically to sell them on our program, let them know what our services were, and help them get into that care. Before that, it was just, I was pretty young, so I kind of had just odd jobs here and there, right, where I didn't really have 
a formal career, you could say, just whether it be serving tables, you know, landscaping, whatever it may be, Dunkin' Donuts, I uh, frequented there when I was young. But, you know, my main career prior to commercial real estate was the healthcare sales that I worked in. And do you have any real estate experience or formal education in the field? Not at all, honestly. And that was kind of an interesting aspect of changing into this is, uh, you know, a lot of people, especially with commercial real estate, because of the level of like knowledge, base knowledge you have to have. I came into this not really having that. And I remember I would interview at different brokerages and they would see no real estate, anything on my resume other than, you know, that I'm getting my license, which is different. It's not really traditional. Most people have some sort of experience behind it. But for me, I just kind of felt that I could figure it out. And that's what I did. And how long did it take you to prepare and pass the exam? The exam honestly wasn't too bad. It was the first type of like school you could say that I did in quite a while. So I had to get used to studying again and, and all of that kind of stuff, which, you know, it's not the funnest. And you'll, you know, hear later on in, in telling my story that I wasn't the best at school, to say the least. But the reality was, is, you know, I, it was something I really wanted to do. And when I really wanted to do it, I wanted to make sure as a priority that I passed it. I did not want to take it a bunch of times. I knew it was a couple hour exam. I hate exams. I'm like, I'm not taking a three hour exam three times. I just, I can't do it. So I, I did my best to study as much as I could and was able to pass it first try. That's wonderful. So we like on this show, Mark and I talk about people's hero's journey. And it's basically what got you to this, starting at this part, what was the drive and what's the arc and where you are now? So uh, how did you get from New Jersey to Florida? What was the journey, the hero's journey from New Jersey to Florida? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm not from Florida. If you met me in person and see how pale my skin is, you'd immediately be able to tell. <laughs> I still living in Florida for like nine years, just haven't gotten a tan somehow. Don't ask. I think it's just the insane amount of Irish skin I have. Well, uh, but you I, won't get skin cancer, so that's good. Exactly. So that's my justification, right? But it, the reality is, is if you leave me outside for two hours, I'll like vaporize in the Florida sun. But uh, <laughs> uh, basically, I, I came from New Jersey down to Florida back in 2014. I definitely have an untraditional story, right? When I was growing up, I made a bunch of decisions essentially in my life that weren't very good. I ended up struggling with substance abuse for quite a bit, pretty much from when I was around 13, 14 until I was around 20. And I was up in New Jersey and I was kind of causing the, a, a lot of havoc in my life, right? And I eventually came down here. That was some big job, you know, promising job opportunity or nothing great like that. But I, I actually went to treatment to get help for my drug addiction when I, when I came to Florida. And I came down here right? Thinking that, you know, I'm just going to come down here to kind of get back on my feet. I'm going to be here maybe 60 days and then I'm going to go conquer New Jersey, you know, get back and get my life in order. And it's funny because I said that nine years ago that I was going to be here for 60 days, right? And it's been, it's been a little bit longer than uh, 60 days, but uh, it's definitely been worth it to say the least, right? I, mm -hmm. I came down Absolutely. here with the intent of, you know, trying to get my life together and, and ended up staying just because of opportunities and, and what I saw could happen in Florida and the ability to start fresh. So that's kind of the base of, of why I'm here compared to New Jersey. And what kind of support base did you have? Who helped you along the way? So I've always had real supportive parents, you know, towards the ends, they were kind of like, look, get your stuff together or don't call us. You know, they kind of gave mm -hmm. me that ultimatum at some level. So, you know, they wished me luck in Florida, but they were like, look, if you're not doing well, we aren't really interested in hearing from you. But I knew that if I was doing the right thing, that they'd be supportive and they'd always have my back. And it's always been that case, right? But I came down here knowing essentially nobody. I went to a treatment center down here, not knowing a soul and kind of just starting fresh. And, and I met people down here along the way that were a little bit farther in that journey that I was, right? That had came down for some of the same reasons but started to get their life together, right? And I kind yeah. of, you know, leached onto them and 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 followed them and and listened to what they were doing and and how their life was getting better. And slowly, as I did that, I started to get a little bit more. How did you get that emotional health together? Your parents are going to be like, "Hey, we're done, and you're stuck on the beach." Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I know exactly what you mean. It's this is like an age old, you know 
illness that has had people confused forever. You know what I mean? And when you really look at the history of like substance abuse and alcohol abuse treatment, not a lot has changed and not a lot of progress has made ever. If you really look at it, it's confusing. It's it's so easy to look at someone who's struggling and say, why, do, why don't you stop? Why don't you stop doing that? Can't you see that your life is getting bad? Can't you see all these negative things happening, right? And it's so easy to wonder, like, why do they keep doing that? And the reality is, is, is the person who's suffering from it a lot of times wonders that too. There's no, there wasn't one single thing that happened to me that said, oh, this is it. I'm now different and I'm going to change and I'm never going to use drugs again, right? And, and if it was, what would happen is they would figure out what that one thing is and they would just make that one thing happen to everybody. And then everybody would not have drug problems, right? But the mm-hmm. reality is it's just so complicated, right? And it's it kind of ends that way with mental health overall, right? Because our minds and humans are so complex and there's so many things that we still don't understand that it it's tough, right? But what I can say is that I did not go to treatment once and just say, you know what? My life's bad. I'm not going to do this anymore. For me, it was a long, grueling process of relapse and failure to where I just could not get my stuff together. I went to treatment eight times, four in New Jersey, four in Florida, other consequences of sorts as a result of my addiction, right? And all of this time, I'm obviously competent enough to the fact that my life is going poorly, right? Like you, when you end up in those places and you check in, you're not like, woohoo, this is great. You know what I mean? You, you generally know that things are bad. Uh, but what I can say is I eventually had enough internal pain and suffering as the result of this to where I became willing to do anything anybody asked me to, to get better, right? And I don't know why that happened. And I don't know what day that was, but it, enough failures, enough suffering, enough letting myself my family down, it got to a point to where I was willing to do whatever the treatment center or whatever anybody on the side of the street told me to do, if it could mean that I could possibly stop using. And once I really felt that way is once my life started to change. It always is that story for all of us that there has to be a commitment from you to yourself. That's really the starting point. Yeah. Um, Once that pain kind of gets great enough, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and that looks differently yeah. for everybody, right? Exactly. Sometimes it's it's the family man that loses his job and that's it. And he gets his stuff together. Sometimes it's someone that's more thick-headed like me to where you have to lose <laughs> literally everything, you know what I mean, before it happens. Right. Um, and then what has to happen is I have to be open-minded, right? And be willing to get that help and to really be honest with myself about the situation and to stop lying about it and to stop lying about how I'm feeling and just saying, oh yeah, I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay at this. No, I have to, I have to start to talk about these things. I have to start to get open. Right. And I have to allow these other people who want to help me. I really got to allow them in. Right. So that this way, you know, we can all kind of work on this together because on my own, I would just never be able to do it myself. Mm-hmm. And that's where I really want to hear that because I, in another episode, we talked about, uh, we talked to, Maureen Tui, who was owning a kickboxing franchise. She wasn't Horatio Alger, where she just journeyed by herself and everything went swimmingly step to step. I mean, she had a big support system in place. She actually had a church helping her out. She had to get that second job and she had to work with her landlord to negotiate deals. You know, the moral of these stories I want to bring to aspiring entrepreneurs is you need a support system. And it's, I may say this a few times in over episodes, I wish I came to that conclusion a little earlier than I did, because I thought I had to take it in and do it all myself. And does that correlate to mental health issues? Yeah, maybe it's another tangent for another time. Connor, maybe thinking, oh, if I just do all this myself, I'll be fine. You know, I'll battle the mental health, I'll battle the addiction, because I'm just going to be a strong character by myself. Exactly. I'll just, you know, and I kind of had a similar way in my business when I first started. And uh, if I'm going to educate people on this show, I hope you, one of the first lessons you take in uh, is to get a support system in place. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And what I could say was so important for me early on is that when I came down to the program, the treatment program, and I once I completed, because those inpatient stays are only 30, 60 days or so, right? And after that, it's like, where am I going to go? You know what I mean? What am I going to do? Like, I don't have, I had no job. I had no money. I had one suitcase, barely, well, barely any clothes, right? Like I, I had no car. I had nothing, you know, I was indigent. Right. And, uh, you know, fortunately there's what's called halfway houses, which are basically like a, a, a living accommodation, right. To where I could basically rent a room and all the other people in the house are kind of in the same position. I am all trying to get their lives together. Right. And it gives you another sort of support network as you're all kind of in it together. Right. And, and I remember like, it was tough. You know what I mean? And, and if I had to rely on myself for all of those things, I, I wouldn't have made it right. I had no money. I managed to get a job at Dunkin' Donuts, right? I was making 200 to $250 a week. I was riding a bicycle, a one gear bicycle there, right? And then I'm coming home to this halfway house to live in. And one guy's getting kicked out. One guy just leaves when he's, you know, when he like is just messing up. Like, and it was an interesting kind of scenario, but people that were doing the right thing there along with, uh, you know, I, I got sober mainly through 12-step fellowships. Uh, creating a support group is really what was able to help me kind of get through that because there'd be a lot of days where, you know, I'm riding my bike home and I'm sweaty and it rained or it whatever. And I'm oh, just like, no. what am I doing this for? You know what I mean? It, this this mm-hmm. sucks at some level. But the reality was, is like, I had people around me saying like, just trust us. Like we did the same thing you're doing and it's going to get better. You just got to keep mm-hmm. your head down. Just keep trying mm-hmm. to do the right thing. Just keep me, you know, hanging out with us, all this stuff. That support group carried me through a lot of those, those times where I otherwise would have been like, you know, when I'm done with this, this is this is ridiculous, you know. And and I think that applies in life generally, right? We are social creatures by nature, right? And and at the end of the day, to get through some of the best times and some of the most challenging times in our life, we need others around us, right? Like I am not this one all Zeus that can do everything, right? Like we all need each other. It really taught me that a lot, especially in those challenging times. I think that's so true because I think also, I think it's kind of an American thing as well to be so self, uh, self-resourceful, self-sufficient, uh, independence is key. And I kind of grew up with some of that as well. Not to, not to, you know, I didn't appreciate teamwork. I didn't, you know, I did appreciate teamwork. I did like working with others, but uh, I realized my knee-jerk reaction was, well, I won't ask for help. I'll just figure this out. That's what I'm supposed to do. You know, don't show any weakness. And I remember in a scenario, you're talking about your bike and pedaling it through the rain. I have one up on you on that. <laughs> Finishing graduate school and I was working in an office and I had no car and I was taking a bike around to do auditions. And one day I had an audition and it just started raining as I was biking and what I was doing is biking to go over and practice at the studio. And then I was going to come home and get dressed and everything. I said, Oh, it's raining. It doesn't matter. I have time. Well, I turned the corner and a taxi cab hits me. Oh man. He, got he, ran, a, he, he ran a stop sign and he didn't even stop. And fortunately I was not injured, but my, I couldn't even ride my bike. My bike was literally pointing in one direction, you know, in the middle, it was bent. So I had to carry that home in the rain the whole time. It goes, whoa, what is me? What is this happening? You know, and I was just like, you know, you could ask a friend to take you to the audition. You do have friends who have offered to take you to auditions. And it's just, that's just a small little slice example. Things are going to happen. You have to keep your head down. You have to, you know, brush off the rain, so to speak, and just say, okay, well, it happened. And now I move on. But maybe in the future, I can ask somebody for help when I get in that kind of a situation. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh boy! So Life you're a Duncan. You got the Duncan. Oh, you're going to bring up a... the donuts. You're going to bring up the donuts, aren't Dunkin you? Dunkin' Donuts is not an underwriter of the show. No, but we like Dunkin' Donuts, and we'll say it anyway. So you got <laughs> you're working at the Double D. You got the French crawlers going, Cynthia. I don't know which one your favorite is, but I'm always with the French crawler. Old fashioned. All right. So Connor serving up old fashions and some French crawlers to us over in the Treasure Coast. How did you get from Dunkin' Donuts to Jeremiah Barron commercial real estate? That is a, a 
packed question that sometimes I honestly don't know the answer. You know what I mean? I, th- I think things happen sometimes in our life to where we kind of reflect and we're just like, how did I get here? You know what I mean? And it's at the end of the day, you know, what it was is at its core is I stayed sober. And because of that, I had opportunities come to me that I can actually take advantage of. And I had opportunities come to me that otherwise wouldn't have happened unless I got my act together. Right. Mm -hmm. So that is like at the floor of why that's the real why I would say from like a professional standpoint, obviously things happen right to where because of that, because of me not messing up, you know, after working at Dunkin Donuts for seven or eight months, and I, I saved up enough money to buy a $1,500 car, right? And it was a 2002 Mazda Tribute. God rest its soul. There's no way it's still on the road. That thing was falling apart when I bought it in 2015. So there's, <laughs> I heard a guarantee nice. it's gone. It's got to be gone. And I bought it. And I remember it didn't have air conditioning uh, most of the time. And I don't know how this worked, but most of the time, the driver's side door didn't work. So I had to climb in through the passenger side door, Right. But I had better transportation than a bike. And because of that, I realized that maybe I can find a better job because I can get a little bit farther than the like three or four mile bike ride I, I, I took for Dunkin' Donuts. Um, and because of that, I talked to some friends. Uh, again, I talked to my support group, right? The people that I met that I started to rely on. And I started saying, hey, you know, I'm trying to find other work, blah, blah, blah. And there was a treatment center, not one of the ones that I went to, but another one in the same town in Port St. Lucie that was hiring what's called like a behavioral health tech. Basically, you're a glorified babysitter or Mm -hmm. a unglorified correctional officer, right? You're just kind of that staff that hangs around, makes sure everybody's there. No one's running off. You take them to where they got to be. If they've got to be in a group or a counseling session, or they've got to be eating or they got to go to bed, whatever it is, that was kind of my job, right? And I took that for about 11 bucks an hour working. I had two overnight shifts from uh, midnight to 10 a.m. And then I had three like evening shifts from four to 12. And then Saturdays I worked 10 a.m. to midnight. It was like a double. Right. And I just kind of started doing that, you know, working my way there, learning the business a little bit. And um, again, because I'm keeping my act together, I'm able to be an actually pretty decent employee. Right. And mm-hmm. when I'm not all messed up, you know, I'm fairly intelligent enough to be able to work at a job and to do a good enough job to where they say, Hey, you're doing a pretty good job. Right. To where I start to end up working during the days, some of the better shifts. I'm not calling out like half my others, you know, employee, you know, coworkers are and stuff like that. I'm pretty reliable. So I'm showing up, I'm picking up shifts. I'm just trying to work hard because I'm hungry at this point. Right. Now that I have this life available to me, I want to make something of it. You know, And it sounds like you're getting a little bit of positive reinforcement for your behavior as well. So it's a positive coming up, a positive loop coming up. I'm starting to see how staying sober is so worth it, right? And doing the right thing is so worth it. Because It's just like kind of at the gym, right? Where you, in the beginning, you're going and you're like, ah, this, you know, this stinks. I'm not really enjoying it. But then one day or one week or one month, you start to be like, man, I never noticed I had a tricep before. And I never noticed that this looks good and and I'm feeling stronger on this, right? And you start to become more motivated for it, right? It was the same thing with my life, right? As soon as I start kind of doing things the right way and living by a bit better of a purpose, my life starts to get better. You know, I eventually get it, you know, basically a promotion at that company to where I become the supervisor of those techs. And then I'm that, and then they start giving me some other roles where I eventually kind of oversee most of their operations at the facility. I help them get what's called a joint commission accreditation, which in the healthcare field is very important. It's very challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm able to be a part of of helping, you know, it wasn't me only doing that, right? I'm able to be a part of helping that Um, all while the business is kind of slowing down and they're not doing too great. And and I eventually realized that I hang around here too much longer. They're probably going to close. They just weren't doing well enough. They didn't have enough patients. They were kind of slowing down and I made a jump to another program. But how I was able to do that is people in my support group were at working at that other facility. And I kind of mentioned to them, you know, hey, like, you know, it's getting a little squirrely over here. You know, if there's (laughs) anything kind of coming up and they were able to connect me. And ironically, it was the facility that I went to when I came to Florida. I ended up being able to basically work there and uh, work there for a while. And I eventually was working there and, and enjoying it. But at some level, it wasn't really where my passion was. 
And it wasn't really where I felt my potential was fully being met. And I remember, you know, all while this is happening, right, I'm starting to build a life. I'm getting, you know, I move out of that halfway house. I get a place with a couple roommates, with a couple friends, right? Then I meet a girl, I get a girlfriend, her and I get a place together, right? I get a bit nicer of a car than the $1,500 car. So my life starts to kind of piece together. My family's back in my life, all this stuff. And I remember it was uh, a bunch of crappy things happened, right? Me and my girlfriend at the time broke up. Uh, The job that I moved over to work at, they laid off two people. Fortunately, not me. Could have been me. So I'm glad I didn't get laid off, but it pushed me to full-time overnights, which I is not fun. I think anyone that's Oof. worked overnights can understand it's it's brutal. And then I had to move out of the place that I got with my girlfriend because we broke up, right? So I'm kind of, I remember I was working this overnight one night after all of this happened and I'm pissed that I'm there overnight. You know, it's 3 a.m. and I'm upset. I'm upset that my girlfriend and I broke up. You know, upset that I had to move in with my friends into a room at the time because I couldn't really figure out what I was going to do next because all of these changes happened in my life. You know, fortunately, nowhere was the thought of using or anything like that. So thank God Good. for that. Right. But I remember thinking, is this it? Is all of my potential me here at 3 a.m. sitting at this desk, just kind of wandering in the wind career wise? Like, I just had this moment of like, I, I don't want this to be it. I think there's more to my life and I think there's more that I can do. And I decided kind of that night at 3 a.m. that I'm going to find a new career. I'm going to, I need to improve myself. I need to get over this breakup. I need to figure out what I'm going to do. And I just kind of had this moment, right? To where I just said, similar to when I stopped using to where I was like, this, I'm sick of this. Like, this can't be it. I've, I've got to figure out a way to really uh, take things to the next level because I, while I've been working in this field, and enjoying it at some level, I slowly was just kind of losing my fire for it. And I was kind of, I didn't like being an employee. I didn't like working super hard just for them to give me an annual review and say, oh, well, we're not really giving raises right now. You know what I mean? Or, or, or you know, you know it's, it's been great for, the, you've been a great team player. Exactly. I, think- I didn't want the pizza party instead of the raise. I just was, I was sick of that, you know? Yes. And, and what I can say is eventually I realized that it just might have not been, been met for me, right? And when I was first getting sober, I didn't really know what was meant for me. I was just kind of going with the wind because I had no clue. I thought I was not going to have any of this, right? So anything was better than nothing at that point. But as I started to kind of get my act together, I started to kind of piece together who I was, what I wanted, what I wanted to do. And it was just continuously being revealed to me that I need to make some sort of jump that I need to take some sort of risk. Otherwise, I'm going to be at this company. And just like the other one, they're going to slowly go out of business. And I'm going to move to another. And I'm going to hop on another sinking ship. And I'm going to do the same thing. And eventually, it's going to be too late for me to try anything new. And I, I really appreciate my dad for some of the talks that I had with him, right? Because he he took the safe route. He had the, the same job, worked for the company for years on years on years, right? The old school mentality. And towards the end of his career, his company sold and they and they let him go. And oh, no. that loyalty didn't pay off for him. And he nope. experienced a lot of financial trouble. A lot of, you know, we lost our house when I was a kid. All sorts of things happened. And he told me, he was like, don't be like me. He was like, take a risk. He was like, please. He's like, if there's anything I can ask you to do is take a risk with something. And for whatever reason, the day he told me that, I agreed, right? And that mixed with that moment I had that one night, I said, you know what? I'm just going to do something different. And I started looking into different opportunities. Um, I was like looking at college to become an accountant. And I'm like, who am I kidding? I hate school. You know what I mean? (laughs) I don't want to be some nerd accountant. (laughs) Funny thing is, is my job is almost all numbers now, right? But it's a different kind, I would say. It's it's more creative now, but uh, I just was looking at stuff and I just realized like, I, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to college for four years. Like, I just feel like I'm wasting my time. And I wanted to do something to where I had more control and I knew of real estate, obviously, but the thought of selling a house and having an open house on Saturday and meeting with the parents to talk about little Jimmy's room just wasn't for me, you know, and uh, no offense to anyone that does it. It just isn't, you know what I mean? I'm more analytical. I'm more direct, I would say. And uh, I had a buddy who Matt knows of. Tim Tully, who uh, worked for Jeremiah, who, who's slightly actually related to him. I think they're cousins or something. And I talked to him and I basically said like, hey, like, what do you think about commercial real estate? And he was like, you know, 
it's amazing. He was like, I do so many different things. And, and it really started to make me think as far as like, oh, maybe this could be something, you know. Before we get into the next segment, we wanted to let you know you're listening to Getting Down to Business with Mark Mondo on WVLP 103.1 FM, a community radio station out of Valparaiso, Indiana. Thanks for listening, and let's continue. Like, Connor, you don't have kids, you don't have a family, you don't have a house, you don't have a mortgage yet, but you know what I mean? You have no real risk other than, you know, the typical failure, not being, you know, happy with yourself if you didn't do it, or, or maybe losing a little money here and there. But I, I, I wasn't risking the whole house or the kids or any of that to try. And he said it was one of the best decisions he had made. And hearing that kind of made me just say, you know what, like, what do I have to lose? And, and I just kind of moved on from there and, and started it. So he, that colleague was more on the residential side or commercial? No, he worked for Jeremiah in his commercial division. He doesn't now. He does uh, a couple other things business-wise, but he worked directly under Jeremiah, just like I do now. Okay. And for those who do not know who Jeremiah is, Jeremiah is the managing broker, I think you call over there, for a commercial and residential estate agency over in the Treasure Coast of Florida called Jeremiah Barron Commercial Real Estate. So here we are. I think I really want to focus on that feeling of what have you got to lose? You know, I'll be a little revealing here. I think the toughest part of sales for me, and maybe Matthew's even going to chime in before we get into more Connor's journey. I getting in the sales, I did some cold calling about 20 years ago. I worked in a boiler room after a software company gig. I, I lasted 30 days and I did cold calling. <laughs> and man, I got rejected every minute of the day. I didn't have the skin anymore. I wound up lasting for about 40 days. It was literally like the movie Boiler Room, where these guys put you in cube farms. Uh, We're doing probably 150 calls a day, just trying to get somebody on the phone. This is in 1996, where you're trying to sell somebody a website to put classified ads on the web or put an e-commerce shopping cart on. So I empathize with rejection. How did you overcome the ability to handle rejection. Sure. I think one thing that, because that was definitely a fear I had, right? Especially with real estate, you know, you're cold calling, you're calling people, you're asking them to sell, you're asking them to buy, whatever it is, right? You're constantly putting yourself in a vulnerable situation, right? To where you're kind of at the mercy of what they say at some level, right? And it's very easy to take that rejection and almost like, attach it to you personally, right? After a certain period of time. But I remember actually something my friend Tim said when I was asking him about getting into this, right? Because I was asking him for advice and he said, every no is one step closer to a yes, right? And he he realized, and he kind of explained to me that he's like, you need to like get a certain amount of no's, right? And and I later on heard other people talk about how I'm only so many no's away from the life of my dreams, right? I'm only so many no's away from a million dollars. I'm only so no, so many no's away before I sell this or that or, or sell $100 million of real estate or whatever it is, right? Like I have to get those no's. I have to get through all of those no's to get to the yeses and to get to the success, right? Once I kind of reframed it a little bit like that, I realized it was just a game. It was a game of numbers, right? I'm going to call 100 people, 98 of them are going to say no. But if the two of them say yes, it's going to be way better than if I didn't call anybody. I'm going to have two more no's than if I didn't make any calls, right? It's the same with girls and relationships. I'm going to ask, not everyone's going to say yes, right? But I'm going to say, I'm going to get a bunch of no's, but eventually one of them's going to say yes, right? And it helped me kind of realize that one, it's not personal, you know what I mean? But two, that those no's had a purpose and had a meaning. And that there was something very good behind them. Now, I'm not going to probably get the guy that already said no 10 times to say yes on the 11th. I'm not here to say I'm a master persuader to where I can change your mind. But I'm here to say that I, if I every day show up when I hear no's from different people all the time, eventually I'm going to hear a yes. Eventually I'm going to hear a sure, a maybe or whatever it is, right? And what's behind that yes or that maybe or whatever is the success and the growth that I'm looking for. So for me, it was kind of, you know, reframing it. And that's the rush when it works. Definitely. That's a rush. 
it is a rush uh, on my side of the fence here. Again, my background is more, I, I've been successful on inbound marketing because I've followed in my tech side a lot of brands. And there's still a rush when they say yes, or you have an idea that came from zero to fruition and it works. You think that's a rush behind it. And, you know, and for those listening to the show and you're getting to an entrepreneurship, boy, it's when you hit that note and it works, there's very few things like that I've experienced in my life. And I'm going to pass the ball to Cynthia. Now, Cynthia doesn't have a background in sales, but I think finding that moment that works for you. And I think an, an analogy you like to use, it, and I'll lead you more into it, is when you sing, is after all, you are the star soprano of the show. Where is that moment for you? Actually, I'm the only star soprano. <laughs> that is correct. Um, yeah, I think it it works on all fields. It's basically everything that Connor has said is basically opening yourself up to opportunity, keeping a positive mindset, rethinking or reframing your thinking so you're not so negative. And I wish I had these key, you know, these skill sets earlier on in my life. I was not always willing to take risks. And I always tell anybody who wants to hear it, who's younger, don't be afraid to fail, take risks. What's the worst that really can happen? And uh, you learn from that and you, you end up not being afraid so much to try that. And it was nice to hear that in Connor's journey. For me, it was a lot of studying, blood, sweat, and tears, going to auditions where they say, thank you, next, thank you, next. And you're always thinking, what could I have done better? It wasn't until I heard someone say, you go in and you give 100%. That's all you can do. And the majority of the people listening to you want you to do well. But there's no guarantee they're going to use you. And that's not your fault. And you just have to keep going. It's in the numbers. And a lot of times I got gigs not because I won an audition. It's because I met somebody in an audition. And they remembered me and referred me to somebody. And then I got a gig that way. But when I'm performing, after all the work and the nerves and everything, when I'm performing, whether as a group or soloist, and I'm in that moment, and it ends, and I hear the applause, I'm like, yep, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. I made these people happy. Yep. But, you know, you know all it took to get there. So very much the same experience. Auditions or sales calls. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you just have to change your mindset. I did as a performer, you know, the, you know, this is not the end all be all of my existence. It's just another step. So here we are, Connor, you, you have crossed the Rubicon. You've started to study. You're doing the cold calling. I know a little bit about the commercial real estate side. I've designed the CRM side for people. I've designed the back end, but not your side where I don't have to, I just make the database work. But you got to go out there and put yourself out there and ask somebody, hey, do you want to sell your building? Or, hey, can I help you buy a building? Tell me more about that. And, you know, this doesn't, from what I can hear so far, there's really not a lot of technology in the way of this. You know, even if we have iPhones and great computers and whatever other tech stack that we have, at the end of the day, it, it, it's, it sounds like, and, you know, tell me if I'm off my rocker. It's you going out there, making the presentations, being authentic, being able to handle rejection and building relationships. I think you really touched the last thing you said, building relationships is like the core of what commercial real estate is, right? Like, and that I would say at some level is why it hasn't seen the amount of change that you may see in some other industries, right? Because at the end of the day, it's all about relationships, uh, whether they be, you know, people you just meet and you do one deal with or longtime clients where you're doing multiple with, right? At the end of the day, I need to be communicating with people who have real estate needs. And my method of how I do that can vary, right? It can be through all sorts of outbound marketing, right? Where I'm cold calling, sending letters, whatever it is inbound, where I'm creating, you know, websites that drive traffic or anything. But at the end of the day, I have to be there as an individual to discuss with them and help them with whatever their real estate needs are, right? Because as a broker, my product and service is basically to connect them with the person that they need, right? So if I have no relationships in real estate 
and somebody wants me to help them sell their building or buy a building, but I have no relationships in real estate at all, it's going to be a challenging task to do so. I don't know who owns what. I don't know what brokers are out there. I don't know what tenants need space. I need to be talking to people and, and trying to, at some level, help them. And if I can focus on those things, talking to people and trying to help them, that will build 80% of my business. And how that looks can be different, a cold call, a flyer, or whatever. But it just boils down to that. I talk to people all day. So I can't just download an app and turn into a successful commercial real estate agent? You know, I I wish I would, you know, because I, I would just get the app. app. Because that's just exactly. me. You know, I'm just going to get the app. And I know that, you know, technology change and, and AI will, you know, continues to change industries and things like that. But I think at some level, commercial real estate will always require people communicating with each other to make these large transactions happen. I would say eventually, you know, maybe AI can do all that for us eventually, right? But at the end of the day, we're talking about people's multi-million dollar assets. That is their retirement. That is their kids' retirement, their kids' college fund, whatever it may be, these you know properties. I don't think they're going to jump to just have a computer or robot take care of that just yet. I think at some level, there needs to be that human connection that develops trust in the process that can be, I mean, because Matt will be able to talk about it. Real estate transactions are some of the messiest transactions there are. You know what I mean? There are so many things that can and do go wrong that will just require human intervention, human assistance, and just human problem solving to be able to get those things across the finish lines. So- Let's talk about your success. We started off with the bicycle that only had one gear, and it's been how many years? The so one- I started commercial real estate or since, since the, the one, one gear, gear bicycle, one the one <laughs> gear bicycle to today. It's been a little over eight years. All right. So in eight years, if you played it relatively safe, and we'll call it the older school work for somebody a long time, and they're going to get you the pension at the end of the day, comparing that generation to today, what is your financial success, Ben? So I can say I have made and I won't obviously get into specific numbers, but even with all the promotions and job, new jobs that I got in that period of time where I talked about how I went from Duncan to a treatment center to getting promoted to another treatment center. At that other treatment center, I got promoted like twice, right? So at the top of what I was making there, my first full, you know, January to December year in commercial real estate, right? Which was my like second year because the first year I started in April. For the next year, 2022, I made four times as much as I made in my last year professionally in, a, in another career. So I hope that paints the picture to where all of that effort, all of that hard work, right? Multiple promotions, multiple this, multiple that. I made four times the money by the time I went through a full first 12 months of uh, commercial real estate. Thank you for supporting my premise at the beginning of the show. Because if you said no, I'd be in real trouble right now. Right. Yeah. I make about a quarter of what I made at Dunkin' Donuts. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Now that you've been established, has your support group changed? Is it still the same people from the uh, the 12-step program? Or are you collaborating with people inside the commercial brokerage at this point? What From what I know is in commercial real estate, it's... I think it's every on the outside it looks like for every man or woman for for him or herself because you're on all commission you only eat what you kill. So help me dispel that myth if I'm wrong. Yeah, definitely. I would say at some level at a base level you are correct to where if I do not transact real estate, if I do not sell or lease real estate at some level, I'm not getting paid. I can collaborate with everybody, but at the end of the day, if I'm not closing deals, I'm not making money. So at some level, I have to focus on me closing commercial real estate transactions to make money and survive. But the cool thing is, right, you kind of mentioned it and hinted towards it, is that my support group, while it does, you know, still have a lot of the people that I initially met as I was, you know, coming up through the 12-step programs and stuff like that, those all, all still are held near and dear to my heart. 
my support group has grown also professionally to where the guys and girls in my office, my colleagues, right? Well, well, we're all our own business. While we don't work for each other or anything like that, we all have realized, and, and I think we're fortunate in our office to where we've realized that the more that we collaborate together, the more deals we're going to do. And I think Matt can definitely attest to this, right? Because Matt, you and I have probably done at least 10 transactions together at this point, worked on close to 20. He, him and I have three, four or five properties that we're co-listing together, right? He just did a transaction to where he had the seller, I had the buyer, and then he brought uh, the two tenants that we ended up leasing it together and he's selling the Subway franchise in there. So we did like four transactions on one property together as a team. And there was just so many moving parts together that it required us to be able to work together on it when we had different problems. And I think that's what's cool about this is whether it be Matt or other guys in the office, and I think Matt can attest to it, is just like the more that we communicate with each other and the more that we try to do this together, we just end up all making more money. You know what I mean? And uh, Matt, I mean, you can probably attest to it, right? Because I, I came in, you know, a little bit after you, but now you and I have done a ton of transactions together. We were talking today on, hey, let's let's focus on Fort Pierce a little more. Let's work on Vero Beach a little bit more. And um, agreed. I mean, this is that in our experience, or I'll say in our communal experience in commercial real estate, there's a, you know they they kind of go with those uh, you know, archetypes of what the sales rep is. And at least in, in my side, and I think Connor can attest to it too, the lone wolf, if you will, doesn't seem to succeed very well within this industry. I mean, uh, you know, Connor kind of alluded to, but we've just, we were just talking, you know, kind of just chatting in the morning about stuff. And all of a sudden it's like, wait, you got what listing? I got a guy looking for this. Let's put them together. And just, you know, casual coffee conversations can cultivate uh, a deal. And, uh, you know, that deal uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Connor, that deal um, cultivated a, a further relationship, which has now become a good uh, client of, of Connor's where this uh, owner has used Connor in multiple transactions, but just stuff that's casual, that starts off as casual, turns into something serious very quickly. And that's all because, you know, we have a, uh, you know, we're, we're within a relationship that we talk to each other instead of hiding everything, keeping it close to the vest and saying, oh, no, that's mine or that's mine. When you say, hey, you know, I'm working with this person. What do you have? Well, I'm working with that person. What do you have? The, the, the general net result is we have more deals uh, together and we cultivate more volume of deals, you know, just versus like, I'm going to go all, all about this on my own, never say a thing to anybody, you know, and keep all the, the, you know, keep all the loot, so to speak, for myself. But the reality is in volumes, you just do better, uh, you know, in multiples versus just doing a few small things on your own. And will you collaborate across different brokerages? I mean, you all, you both work for the same brokerage. Will you collaborate like that with somebody at a different brokerage? We can. I mean, the reality is real estate has its own unique perspective of, you know, it's like if you're a retailer and you're selling the same product to somebody down the street and you're, you know, five, five cents off more than they are, you know, we call that, I kind of call that a customer, right? You're, you're kind of a race to the bottom of price. But with real estate, our, our real competition, if you will, comes in that, you know, we both, we, we ultimately want to get a listing. A listing is our highest and best use of our time because we have the opportunity to control the property and control the deal at that point. Uh, so I guess competition wise, yes, we all want to have a listing where we're, you know, our name's on it and uh, you know, we, we control, portion, you at least get part of the transaction at minimum at that point. But, you know, the reality is beyond that, you end up working within our own brokerage or within, I call it competing brokerage, but we have to come together at that point to get a deal done for that owner at that point, whether it be a lease or a sale. And again, you try to hold the clothes to the vest with that, you wind up doing a disservice to the ownership. And I know Connor's had a few instances of that too, where, you know, there's been a, a broker that they didn't want to give up any part of the deal to somebody else. And they wound up potentially, you know, torpedoing, I guess, you know, a, a transaction there because they want to keep it close to the vest. Our our goal is that we have to work for the owner and get that deal done. If, it's, if it happens, we can call, we call double-siding it. Great. If we don't, and we have to work with somebody else. Yes, we we do give up a little bit of our own income, but the reality is those, those are made up in transaction volume too. But at the end of the day, you work for the owner. Ultimately, our goal and our our how you will our our client is the owner. That's who we work for, and we have to complete the transaction for that owner in a, in a timely manner. So again, we can work with them again and again and again, 
that translates to other relationships with other owners and it just kind of multiplies from there. But in a lone wolf scenario, keeping it close to the vest, it's usually unfruitful for both the owner and for the agent at that point too. Yeah. One thing I'm glad that when I first came in the office that Matt kind of made clear is that uh, he made it very obvious that the more we collaborate, you know, something's better than nothing, right? I don't have all the buyers. He doesn't have all the sellers, vice versa. If he's got someone and I've got someone, let's just work together on it. Let's get it done. He always says, let's just get it done. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, we'll be happy once it's done and we got paid rather than if we're being selfish and holding it off. So it's just always worth to collaborate. I, I think the yeah. phrase I use is done is better. <laughs> it, it is because there's four, there's four betters at the outcome, if you will. Let's say if, you know, for example, Connor and I are working on a deal at that point, this is a sale transaction. I, a seller's rep, Connor's the buyer's rep. Uh, we have, once it gets done, there are four happy parties involved. The owner has, you know, received a financial compensation for the sale of their property. The buyer has a property that they can either, you know, do something with me if it's an investor or an owner user. Uh, and then Connor and I both subsequently walk away with a commission for our, our efforts. And there are four happy people at the end of the day versus zero happy people at the end of the day if no transaction gets done. And, you know, kind of to go back to that lone wolf analogy, you know, the lone wolf transacts far fewer. They make it may make a few more dollars here and there, but ultimately they're not working for the end goal of, of completing the transaction, which is what our business is. Well, I think that's a that's a really good place to stop just for now because we're reaching the end of the hour. I'd like to thank Cynthia for keeping us on the level and on time today. You're welcome. And I'd like to thank both Matt and Connor for coming in today. Appreciate it. I appreciate having us. If you missed some of the show today, you can listen to the replay on Thursday at 1 p.m. Central Time on WVLP 103.1 FM or live stream at www.wvlp.org. And we store the past shows on Mark's website at www.mondocrm.com forward slash podcast. Or you can listen to the podcast on your favorite app at any time. We're listed in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and Podbean. Just search for Mark Mondo and the show will come up and you can subscribe to the show for the latest updates. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. And we'll see you next week for part two, where we talk to Matt and hear his story. Bye-bye.